episode 364 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're going to express today do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets. I'm going to be interviewing today the Institute for Security and Technology Ransomware Task Force Working Group Co-Chairs, a mouthful, about their recent uh, ransomware task force report. It will be, I've already put it in the can, so I know it will be a a surprisingly contentious and and, and some would say obnoxious interview uh, in which I'll push them on a lot of their recommendations. It'll be pretty entertaining, I hope, for everybody. But before we do that, let's do the news roundup. We've got Mark McCarthy here. He teaches technology law and policy at Georgetown and does tech policy at the Future of Privacy Forum. Mark, good to have you. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. And Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator. Dmitry, great to have you. Okay. And Jordan Schneider, our China Tech Analyst uh, and the Rhodium Group's China Tech Analyst and the host of the excellent China Talk podcast. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We've got a lot to talk about uh, this week because we had a long week. Dimitri, let's start out with Vladimir Putin. Is he finally getting a handle on American social media? I get the feeling he's starting to break the code and, and find ways to bring them to heel. Well, I actually don't think it's just Vladimir Putin. I think what's happening here is that we're entering the last phase of the balkanization of the internet. You're seeing many countries, of course, it started with China over 20 years ago with a great firewall, but now Russia and Turkey and even Poland and many others realizing that they can have a lot of control, a lot, establish a lot of sovereignty over the internet within their own borders. And of course, what you've seen in China and Russia is just the latest example of the cracking down on independent sources of information. It started with the media and television networks back 20 years ago, continuing to the newspapers, and now sort of the last bastion of, of independent thought and, and freedom in Russia is being cracked down on in terms of Google and Facebook and Twitter. And they're finding that they're, they can do a variety of things. Uh, a number of these companies have offices in Russia, employees in Russia that can be threatened and pressured. They're instituting some fines, although at this moment, they're still relatively small fines on the order of $100,000 for Google, which is not even a rounding error in their overall. Yeah, that um, that, that, that feels like a, it's, a, it's more a signal. First, we're going to fine you 80000 or $100,000, and then we're going to start throttling your traffic, and that will really hurt. Yeah, that's right. And they're already starting to do the slowdowns on Twitter. And of course, in Russia, they actually have domestic equivalents of most of these social media networks. Vcontact is their equivalent of Facebook. Yandex is their equivalent of Google. So um, slowing down American providers will simply push people towards using Russian sources that are faster and easier to use. And as a result, will be much more under much more tighter control by Russian government. But this is something that's happening all over the world. And the the era of the open and free internet, if it ever existed, is is certainly coming to an end. Yeah, and and that raises the question. I mean, the internet companies are still pushing that line. Oh, don't do anything to restrict traffic into the United States or to acknowledge that our standards are different from other countries because we have to have this open and free and global internet, which we don't have. And that raises the question, I think, increasingly we'll see it whether 
we should acknowledge that and take advantage of the fact that would give us an opportunity to make it harder for uh, Russian and Chinese actors to affect our networks if we had some restrictions on how content got to the U.S. Yeah, I'm not quite there with Stuart. I don't actually think that those types of restrictions would be at all effective at, at thwarting cyber attacks from those countries. But you're absolutely right that we need to start recognizing the reality that already is here, that we have balkanization, that we don't have a free and open and global internet, and it's time to uh, sort of wake up to that reality. Yep. All right. So the epic Apple trial has ended and the judge did a kind of remarkably open colloquy with both sides as they did their wrap up arguments. Mark, I, the judge clearly was determined to say something harsh about everybody, but can you give us a sense of where the case is likely to go from the questions and the interventions she made? It's a tough call to figure out what she might want to do. The, the problem is that Apple has a pretty durable monopoly over its uh, mobile app infrastructure, both the operating system and the store. And that this enables them to take a 30% cut. And clearly the judge wasn't happy with that. And, and the judge also wasn't happy with what she described as the anti-steering rule, which prevented the app developers from telling potential customers that they could pay for the app outside of the app store. But she really didn't give a, a clear hint about what she might want to do as a remedy, warning only that neither party would like it very much. So you uh, think she may be trying to get them to settle after all? Uh, she, she, she might be trying to nudge them in that direction. That's a standard thing for policymakers and judges to do, saying, don't make me decide, neither of you will like it. On the other hand, Epic Games has always been consistently vague about the remedy it wants. One possible remedy is simply you know, a price cut. I mean, 30% seems to be what Apple has set, settled on. But the court could say, well, that's too high. Let's try 15%. And that's possible, but price regulation of a digital service is kind of hard to enforce yeah, if you're a court. The, the idea that, they, that, that the judge is going to be getting petitions to say, really, judge, it ought to be 12. Uh, she's not going to be happy about that. It's a regulatory solution, and maybe that's where we have to wind up going. But it's hard to see the court going there. Uh, so that the second possibility is simply a ban on the on Apple's anti-steering rule, and that's and, a loss um, for Epic, isn't it? Uh, it doesn't feel like it, a. Very... It might not be enough, but the court might find that it it's anti-competitive and banning it and ban it, and it would be similar to the case uh, involving Amex, where the court would have to say, well, in the Amex case, it was a, it was a transactions market. The Amex cardholders got a tangible benefit from the the rule and so on, and the judge might say it's hard to see how the app customer benefits at all from the Apple anti-steering rules so that she may strike that down. And then the question is whether that really does Epic any good. It might cut into Apple's $72.3 billion uh, revenue from, from the app store, but, but they could simply start communicating with app purchasers saying, if you go through the app store, we'll give you a benefit. We'll give you a discount or something else, some kind of reward. And so it's hard to see how Epic really comes out ahead if that's the fix. And there's not much else that the court can do. It really is limited under antitrust laws as currently interpreted and, and antitrust laws currently practiced to come up with anything more than that. So we'll have to wait and see. And, and, and maybe there'll be a nudge towards a settlement, but uh, only time will tell. 
All right. I kind of agree with you. I, I was, I, I thought that Epic was doing better until the judge said, uh, well, let's get real here. If you win this case, you go, you go from being a multi-billion dollar company to a multi-trillion dollar company. That's what this is about. That didn't sound all that sympathetic. Stuart, what do you think the odds are that Apple drops the the fee to 17% dot and 76 17.76 on July 4th and tries to wash their hands of the whole thing. Could be, but that would be a little... I think they're going to have to pick a Chinese national holiday rather than the 4th of July. Well, no, it's an interesting question, though, because like, if the courts in the U.S. force Apple to lower the rate here, there's no way that the rest of the world's regulatory bodies, all of whom are you know not particularly happy that their consumers and developers have to deal with this fee, they're not going to say, "Oh, wait, you're giving America a break, but not us." So I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, maybe in China it'll be eight point eight eight percent. We'll just have to see. All right. So the other hot policy issue in Washington for the last month has been fallout from the colonial pipeline disaster. I And for the first time, we're seeing actual regulatory action. Talk about a cyber incident disclosure without the BS about, oh, there has to be personally identifiable information. That was always a weird requirement. And now Mike Ellis uh, has proposed and others have proposed a uh, cyber incident disclosure requirement. And TSA, which is part of DHS, but not the part that regulates cyber, is going to regulate cyber for pipelines. Dimitri, uh, is this all good news or are there some problems that I don't see? Well, th this is one of the fastest regulatory responses I've ever seen to, to a cyber incident. And, and it makes sense because this is the one incident, probably the first ever that we've had, that really impacted lives of ordinary Americans on an unprecedented scale. Past attacks, people sort of read about them in the news, but no one was really personally affected by, in a significant way, by SolarWinds hacks or not Petias even. Companies obviously were. And even ransomware attacks, you may have had isolated cases in hospitals, but you didn't have millions and millions of Americans standing in line for gas although much of that was driven by just like the, the toilet paper crisis last year by a surge in demand that versus the lack of supply. But nevertheless, what you're seeing now really is an emergent consensus in DC that we absolutely need a federal breach notification law that is not just focused on PII. Uh, a lot of uh, talk about it has begun after the SolarWinds hack and, and many Congress people highlighted the fact that if FireEye had not come forward voluntarily, and told us that they were impacted by that incident. We still may not know about that intrusion, so you can't possibly have a situation where you have a crisis uh, um, that is significant on a national security front, and it's up to individual companies to decide whether they're gonna tell the government or not. The interesting thing about the response to the pipeline incident is that the TSA is gonna mandate mandatory breach disclosure within 12 hours, and there is no liability protection. Of course, that is something that's been sort of the common wisdom in this town for the last 15 years, that if you're gonna pass a national breach notification law, you have to provide liability protection to companies. No one is even suggesting that Colonial should get that liability protection given sort of their response to this whole situation. So I do wonder if it's gonna put a nail in the coffin of liability protection. Yeah, it, the, the idea of offering liability protection for disclosure always had a certain kind of vague appeal. Well, we shouldn't pick on them. And, and if they do the right thing, they shouldn't be sued. But, you know, you kind of wonder, what do you get 
protection for? Uh, and it was never very clear. And it was always kind of uh, the politicians saying, I don't have the political clout to make you do this. I'm going to have to bribe you to do it. So here's the bribe. And industry said, yeah, we're not interested in that particular offer. And so they're going to get it good and hard instead of with a little bit of honey to make the medicine go down. That's right. And, and, and by the way, like if you look at the precedent here, breach notification laws in all the 50 states, GDPR in Europe and elsewhere, none of them provide liability protection. So this would actually go against precedent to provide liability protection for breach disclosure. So the reason this is moving so fast is my theory is that uh, TSA is not really competing with anti-regulatory concerns. Uh, they are competing with the Energy Department and the Department of the Homeland Security Committee is competing with the Energy and Commerce Committee, both of whom want their particular agencies to do the regulating. TSA has the initial authority, but they haven't used it because they were light touch regulators. And now they've realized that being a light touch regulator means that you're a soft touch for the Energy and Commerce Committee when they decide to come and take away your jurisdiction. So they're rushing this out so they can say, we already have regulations and you have a bill that you hope to get passed. Why don't you just pipe down? So yeah, and I do have to say, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of TSA being the regulator for pipelines on cyber front, because they're certainly not the agency that is highly capable of understanding the nuances of cyber. But I'm not sure that there are better options. You don't really want CISA to become a regulator, given that they're trying to work with industry on a voluntary fashion. And a lot of these pipelines carry not just oil and gas, but other chemicals and water and other things. So energy may not be the best solution either. So it's a hard challenge of who would regulate. Yeah, I, I am less, I, I, I am not of the view that CISA should never be a regulator because I just think in the end, when you want a real partnership with industry, you have to have some clout and they're going to have to demonstrate clout. I thought it was interesting that when they said, oh, we're going to hire more people to do this TSA pipeline regulation, they said, we're gonna hire, oh, 15 more people at TSA and 100 more at CISA. Uh, so we, we know who's gonna be in charge of, of, of figuring out the regulations. All right. Are those, Stuart, are those 15 people just responsible for forwarding emails? <laughs> I'm sure that, well, look, it, they have been worried about s the security of pipelines in the sense that if people break a pipeline, they can cause massive damage. And the distinction has been pipelines were the transportation department's uh, worry, not energy, by the way, from the point of view of safety. How do you manage against rust and mistakes? And then from the point of view of worrying about people who had it in for you, who were actually actively trying to screw up your system, that became TSA's worry. And that's what TSA worries about is people who are actively trying to carry out acts of sabotage. So it makes some sense, but I agree, they're gonna spend a lot of time, just as the FDA does, sending mail to CISA saying, does this make sense? How about this? And I assume this was way worse than someone like bombing. Well, probably, although if it was uh, all over your land you, or in your river, you might feel differently. All right. Florida has stepped up pressure on social media companies, maybe, uh, passing the most aggressive state law by far in terms of trying to get a handle on the 
control of content by users that social media have exercised. It, it's a pretty sweeping bill. The, among the most important things uh, that it does are regulate deplatforming of candidates and imposing restrictions on exactly how people carry out their their content moderation. Mark, uh, uh, do you think this has a chance of surviving litigation? It, it, it's got a chance and it, it has other elements in it as well. It, it also requires social media companies above a certain size to carry journalistic enterprises as well as political candidates in Florida. And that, that responds both to the Trump deplatforming and the social media ban on that uh, New York Post Hunter Biden story. But it also says that, that if a social media company has been accused of an antitrust violation, it, it can't work for uh, public agencies in Florida. And as you point out, it, it has various due process protections for users of social media companies. So the industry organizations immediately filed a complaint in the district court in the Northern District of Florida, and they think it's got uh, First Amendment and, and two thirty Section 230 failures. It's a strong suit, and as you'd expect from something crafted by first-class lawyers at, at, at DC law firms. Uh, and what they're asking is that the statute be enjoined before its effective date of July 1st uh, of this year. So the First Amendment objections are pretty straightforward. The, you're infringing on the rights of social media companies to decide what to carry, what not to carry. So this would affect the requirement that says you've got to carry political candidates and journalistic enterprises. It objects to the uh, requirement to moderate uh, content in a consistent manner. It even objects on First Amendment grounds to the idea that uh, users should be able to opt out of personalization uh, or content moderation algorithms. And of course, it's got a pretty strong case on unconstitutional discrimination in the case of this notorious exemption for companies owning a park in Florida, which exempts our friends at Disney from the statute. I, I haven't checked. I'm hoping that there's some kind of a severance clause, a severability clause that would allow Florida set to say, well, if that's unconstitutional, we'll let it go. Yeah, there, there is that. And, and some First Amendment scholars look at that and say, this is a no-brainer. It wouldn't even get past a law school exam. But if you look at the court decisions in the cable case, Turner Broadcasting, and the broadcasting case, Red Lion, I think those those precedents give the courts the room they want to uphold the, the statute, or at least parts of it, if they really want to. But it's only fair to acknowledge that the weight of current jurisprudence uh, is on the side of those who think the statute is unconstitutional. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think the, the tech press is kidding itself. It says this is going to be laughed out of court and, you know, their Florida's head is going to spin. They're going to be reversed so fast. I think first... I don't know who the judges are in the Northern District of Florida, but uh, that's not where I'd go for people who think that deplatforming Trump was the best thing that ever happened to social media. <laughs> uh, and uh, this is, there is plenty of room for a sympathetic judge to preserve big chunks of this, maybe all of it, or at least to push off the decision about whether to kill parts of it until they can see how it's being administered. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a facial challenge. It's not as, as yeah. administered. So I think that's right. But you know what? The, I think the case is stronger on Section 230 grounds of preemption. 
except that good faith there's so much room in good faith for many of the things that they have proposed yeah that's not what they'll argue i mean the, the complaint says that they're treating the, the social media companies as as publishers of their users information and that's exactly what is barred under under 230 and, and 230 is pretty clear that if you do treat a social media company as the, the publisher and liable uh, as the publisher, then th that statute is preempted. So I, I know that is hallowed ground for the 230 believers, but I, it, I don't think it's consistent with the structure of the statute, and I'm not sure it's really required by a reading of the word publisher. I, it was clear that uh, what not being a publisher meant when this was passed, you're not a publisher for libel purposes. And there was lots of rules about what publishers libel liability was. To say uh, this rather complex regulatory scheme treats us as a publisher, and that's obvious on its face, even though it doesn't use the word, and therefore it's gotta be deemed inconsistent with the section 230, I think is pushing it. I, I think that the people who have bet on publisher as the way to beat all these laws are kidding themselves. Uh, they're really trying to do what the second half of 230 does by using the first half. And I think that's going to be obvious to the courts. The, the courts have, have already upheld that Section 230, the first part, allows the social media companies to, to host material or not host material as, they're, as they see fit. Now, it's, it seems pretty clear to me that the requirements to carry political candidates and journalistic enterprises, they're pretty clearly preempted because that's a mandate to carry information uh, of third parties. Uh, it's not clear to me about the, the transparency and notification requirements, whether that's preempted by 230. How could it be? The, How could it be? When the law says to you have to have good faith in order to impose these restrictions. I, I, the argument is that even these due process restrictions boil down to holding a social media company liable for hosting or not hosting a user's content. That's the argument. I think it's pretty far-fetched. I agree with you in that one. But I do think the other stuff on political candidates and journalistic enterprises uh, are not going to be something that can be done at the state level. Frankly, this, it's going to turn this issue to the federal level, uh, where I think the most likely candidate for bipartisan action is the Senate's bill, the Platform Accountability and Consumer Transparency Act. And it, there's news there. They just got two additional bipartisan co-sponsors, Senator John Barroso, a Republican from Arizona, and Tammy Baldwin, Democrat from Wisconsin. They join Republican John Thune and Democrat Brian Schatz as the co-sponsors. So that's beginning to attract some more support in the Senate, and it's the likely place for reformers uh, to turn in this area. Yeah, it, it, this is a hard one for people to make compromises on because they so mistrust the other side. But th this sort of thing, the only people who really are, are put out by these requirements are the social media platforms who think that it's going to restrict their ability to keep their algorithms and their processes secret. Uh, for good reasons and bad, they want to keep them secret. But I... What they're really hoping is that they can get the Republicans and the Democrats fighting about Donald Trump and they'll never bother to pass the law.
Yeah, I, I think there's more life and bipartisan consensus in this area than people are giving credit for. All right. Well, I the Russians are at it again, I, and pretending to be the U.S. Foreign Assistance Organization, USAID. This got a lot of attention, Dmitry, and maybe it deserved it just because it comes right after all those sanctions that were supposed to deter Russia. And it does have a kind of in-your-face element because they're using an official USAID email to pass around malware and get people to compromise their their, situa- their systems. It isn't really a big breach. It's more that it's a kind of Putin-esque, uh, yeah, I'll see your deterrence and raise you. Well, I actually think that this is one of the most overhyped phishing campaign stories I've seen in a very long time. First of all, spies are gonna spy. This is Russian SVR, foreign, uh, Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, doing what foreign intelligence services do, compromise networks and try to collect information. This is in no way crossing any red lines that I can see. It wasn't even a hack of USAID. What appears to have happened is they've gotten credentials, maybe they guessed them, maybe they social engineered them, of one of the USAID's employees to the constant contact marketing email service and use that service to send out an email to, to um, the full list of, of people that USID usually sends their marketing messages to. And of course, those messages included links that would compromise their, their, their systems. This is in no way connected to SolarWinds other than being done by the same service. And even Microsoft released an update after overhyping this early on saying, well, uh, hold on a second, we're actually n- not seeing any evidence that there's a significant number of compromised organizations at this time. So not only do you not have an, a major number of victims, this is just run-of-the-mill spying. And by the way, it started well before, months before the sanctions. Place. So you, you can't even make the argument that yeah. the sanctions, one, are not designed to stop this type of activity. They're not designed to st- uh, stop standard espionage. But this began even before the sanctions were, were in place. All right. Uh, uh, always nice to put a, 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 a pin in the balloon uh, of uh, cybersecurity hype. We don't do that often enough. Jordan, to my surprise, the Wall Street Journal has just this rah-rah story about how great American policy against Huawei has been in terms of upending the cellular equipment and back office industry, new competition, new opportunities for U.S. companies. I, it was a remarkably upbeat story. Uh, and I, can't, I confess to a certain amount of skepticism about the idea that the U.S. actually has had the impact that, it, that this story suggests. And Dimitri, before we started, pointed out to me that the Italians have re-upped with Huawei. So if there's an impact here, it's not universally felt even in Western Europe. I mean, this is not a one to zero thing, which the US government has been able to do over the past, say, four years now, pushing back against pushing back against Huawei and its international expansion. I mean, you've really had uh, attacks on multiple fronts. So first, of course, the Trump era sanctions, which the Obama, which the Biden administration has continued to to hold in effect, making it 
increasingly difficult for Huawei to make make hardware. They've had to sell off a lot of their cell phone hardware business. And while there are sort of fewer chips, which are which you need to make the, the 5G base stations, and Huawei has focused all of its chip reserves on making sure that it can continue supplying that, it's still made their sort of business proposition a lot less, a lot more difficult. And then you have this other policy push, which is in line with a broader industry effort along, which includes basically every single firm, which isn't Nokia, Ericsson, or uh, Huawei, to bring in, bring in open RAN, bring open RAN to the fold. So very briefly, what is open RAN? It is a basically a, a 5G base station. So if you have the tower, like all the hardware on the bottom, like that big mysterious box is usually filled with just one company's one company's stuff. And because these things have been sold as sort of prepackaged solutions since for time immemorial, though I guess time immemorial for cell phone towers isn't really all that long. But anyways, what, what you've seen now is a push to make these different different sort of parts of the hardware in the base station interoperable. So you basically like build in the equivalent of APIs so that the different the different the pieces of the box can be subbed out based on your your cost considerations, who you want to buy from to kind of create a more diverse supply chain than just saying, okay, we're going to rely on Ericsson or we're going to rely on Huawei for our entire solution. So this is now caught the this sort of movement which bubbled up from industry has now caught the eye of governments around the world. Japan is particularly interested in this solution. Rakuten was one of the one of the initial firms who is really pushing it as a as an alternative. And the US government has now is now potentially putting billions of dollars into kind of juicing this ecosystem. You saw it in the Endless Frontier bill as one of these sort of anti-China bipartisan tech solutions which has gotten a lot of a lot of bipartisan support. So while this is not the death knell of Huawei and uh, sort of all our 5G problems have not been solved it really is a, a, the sort of speed at which Open RAN has caught on both in the commercial space as well as among policymakers over the past uh, really only year or so is pretty is a pretty remarkable story. And it's it is a, it's the traditional Silicon Valley response to an entrenched standards based or it's not, not standard an entrenched provider of technology is to say why don't we open it up and allow disaggregation of the stuff that this company has aggregated. That was the attack on Microsoft. That was the attack on AT&T. So whoever is in the lead usually benefits by being able to lock people in. And Huawei has a reputation of giving people so much customer service in tailoring their networks that when they're done, nobody understands how the network works except Huawei. And that is, that's a commercial advantage until somebody comes along and opens up all the APIs. Well, I actually think that uh, broader than Huawei and 5G, this is an example of how effective uh, U.S. export controls can be, both in confronting the rise of China and, and some of the nefarious influences of their um, state-owned enterprises, as well as enterprises like Huawei that are private but heavily supported by, and uh, supported by the state, but also in encouraging domestic competition and uh, providing multiple options. So I think this is one of the things we should look at very heavily when um, trying to think about how we confront the semiconductor issue that is probably one of the top national security concerns right now, the dependency on Taiwan for most of our semiconductor needs, as well as the rise of semiconductor manufacturing in, in China. And this is the one area where we have phenomenal leverage because most of the tools, the design tools that go into the process of designing chips, as well as the equipment manufacturers that are using those fabs 
or in the U.S. or a few allied countries. So this is one of the areas that we need to explore um, a lot more. So why don't we go? Why don't we go right to the the bill that's been started out as uh, the what is it? The Everlasting Freedom? No, it, the Endless, Endless Frontier uh, Act. Endless Frontier. <laughs> it's the I EF like Everlasting so Freedom. I, probably would, would be a better name. It, it, it sounds like it, a bad it's name for a sci-fi a new movie. name that's even more boring. Which is substantially more boring as the as as the bill has grown bigger and bigger. Jordan, I know you've been disappointed because the Endless Frontier Bill appealed to you and has been. Uh, completely transformed by the process of log rolling that produces these big omnibus bills. But where is the legislative process on this? Uh, we're going to get a bill and what's it going to do? Uh, so I think I'm in the acceptance phase now, Stuart, with respect <laughs> to Endless Frontier. Basically what, what it started out as was a $100 billion over five-year proposal to create a tech initiative, focus, or, or yeah, a new tech initiative within the National Science Foundation to do sort of applied and translational research and build off of the incredible basic research that the U.S. does and kind of bring that bring those sort of scientific explorations into the market to help sort of American industry compete. This is now, that part of the bill has shrunk pretty dramatically. A lot more money is going towards basic research, national labs, and 1,500 other pages of nominally sort of China competition type stuff, which includes everything from cyber workforce development to shark fin regulation, really anything under the sun, which any <laughs> politician could like sort of squeeze into something nominally anti-China. So where is this bill? Well, and, and because this is a, a bipartisan bill that is going yeah. to pass, for sure, everybody wants to be on this train and they want their baggage on this train. And so it's getting loaded up with uh, with baggage. And at some point it'll it'll get paired a little is my yeah. guess, but we're going to see all kinds of weird stuff sure. in here. So yeah, we have a house version of this, which is substantially smaller in terms of the, in terms of the budget and al uh, budget allocated towards the National Science Foundation and isn't quite as creative, if I may say so myself, in terms of the sort of different avenues, which is going out this problem, because in, in doing R&D, like innovate, in, in trying to improve R&D in the U.S., you really want to let a, a thousand flowers bloom in sort of new funding models to to hope that you stumble upon the next DARPA, as opposed to just kind of throwing money uh, into NSF, which is going to do what it wants to do. And yes, there's some expertise there, but there's also a long entrenched culture of doing one thing. And if Congress wants you to do something else, which is a little more kind of industry focused, it's going to be very difficult to kind of build that muscle in an institution, which is already very good at what it does which is not necessarily this. So the bill has now been tabled for the next few weeks, but is certainly going to come back at some point this summer. And the bipartisan push with this legislation isn't going to go anywhere. Senator Rubio had a good line. He said, if Congress can't pass a, a China bill, we really should put ourselves out of business because, I mean... <laughs> so uh, just very briefly, I, I saw, saw that she gave a speech about science and technology and... Reading through it, I said, geez, apart from the way it's phrased, I, this could have been Tom Cotton or uh, Marco Rubio or uh, even Chuck Schumer giving this speech. Is there really much difference in how he thinks the government should interact with uh, the tech industry and uh, what the uh, Congress you know, is producing? It, it's really interesting if framing it 
framing it in that perspective, because on the one hand, there are some similarities. And w- while you do have uh, senators saying, oh, we don't want to out China China, like there's definitely a lot of like China inspired type reforms talking about giving 50 billion dollars in appropriations to, to to subsidies for the semiconductor industry for one is certainly something which would come out of Beijing's playbook but I think the sort of central but, but she also she also spends time saying now we don't want to get into tell companies how to do the market or what when companies can do it on themselves on their own we don't want to uh, interfere so there's something a little republican in she's speech yeah too. i mean he also has a state the state-owned ind- there is a state-owned industry in china which comprises 30 percent of gdp right so that's like a little tongue-in-cheek and I, I think the chinese government understands that there is real dynamism in the private sector and they want to kind of harness that and channel it but i don't think we're going to see the winding back of this sort of state-owned ecosystem anytime soon i i think there are two fundamental differences in where beijing and, and washington look at this first the like level of self-reliance which the u.s is comfortable with versus china is very different right like america has allies, which are high technology allies, which it intends to count on to some degree in shape or form. And even though Dimitri was talking about Taiwan and the concentration of sort of fab supply there as a weak point, I mean, I think the U.S. would be perfectly happy if like we ended up with a sort of fab universe in which there's more supply in South Korea and Japan and Europe and in the US. China, Beijing in particular, is not happy with that sort of solution. A, because its allies include Zimbabwe and Pakistan, which aren't about to sort of contribute to the sort of share of like China aligned R&D funding around the world anytime soon. And frankly, don't have the capacity to to really give that sort of payback. And I think the I think it's a real testament to the advantage that the US and its allies, frankly, have in terms of the level of development in which a lot of its firms are in the global ecosystem as well as the as well as the importance of allies where like it's much easier to sort of do market oriented things if you can rely on some form of globalization which is not perhaps the complete sort of unfettered entangling which went on between the US and China over the past 40 years but is still incorporating the sort of returns to specialization which you get by by working with other firms who are based in different countries around the world Yep. All right. Well, let's. I, we're going to run low on time here. I. I. But I do want to cover the remarkable amount of attention that regulating cryptocurrency is getting around the world in Washington, in London, uh, frankly, in Beijing and elsewhere. And recently, the Brits have started to talk about this much more often. The Washington, the White House is saying we're looking hard at Bitcoin, although exactly what they're looking at is unclear. Uh, uh, Dimitri, is there a theme to this cryptocurrency regulatory push? Well, there is, because if you look at how it's used today, it's used for drug dealing, money laundering, ransomware and speculation. And uh, there's very little legitimate activity going on and tax evasion, I forgot that piece as well. (laughs) So um, of course, when you look at it from the government perspective, they are becoming more and more interested in this. One, there's a potential for destabilization of the markets because of the amount of money that's flown into this. It's now a $2 trillion uh, market, a lot of it based on leverage. And of course, when we've seen the leverage being used in the past in 2008 and other places, it does not end well and can have uh, cascading effects on the broader economy. So while it's still fairly small today as a market, it's increasing rapidly and the government is paying close attention to this. We we saw a proposal from the IRS to now report any transactions over $10,000 to IRS because they're worried about the tax evasion that's taking place 
with all this cryptocurrency speculation. And the thing that I think is most important from my perspective is the impact on ransomware. We've seen how ransomware has affected hospitals, obviously the colonial breach. Just today, we're hearing about the uh, impact of the meat supply by targeting of GB JBS, one of the largest meat processor in the world. And we really don't really have a ransomware problem. We have a cryptocurrency problem. It has emerged because of the ability of criminals to collect payments in a pseudo-anonymous fashion, in a way that's very hard to trace. And that has just driven the explosion and the extortion and ransom schemes that we're now seeing on an almost daily basis. So KYC, know your customer regulations, we've talked about it before, but I think it is a key part of the solution to the ransomware problem and a key part of the regulation of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Yeah, well, we'll see. I, 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 we hear that a lot. I wonder how well it can be implemented worlds as jordan described it in which we have allies not vassals uh, every jurisdiction has to come to that same conclusion itself and they might decide they they could do some regulatory arbitrage certainly london is heavily dependent on being the place where people do financial transactions and they will want to have a good reputation among cryptocurrency traders as well as everybody else. So I wouldn't be surprised. But as you, as you Stuart, we've succeeded in doing KYC and AML schemes in traditional finance sphere. We even got the Swiss, the Swiss on board, which was remarkable. So we have a lot of power when it comes to the financial system. It took 15 years of steady pressure, but you're right. We did do it. I, and maybe that's, maybe this will be faster because the problem is so much more obviously worse. All right, let me do some quick hits. First, the European Court of Human Rights has produced a massive opinion that barely salvages the UK's mass data intercept regime. It says you can do this if you do it right, but you didn't do it right. And here are all the rules that you have to follow, the amount of legislative oversight you have to have, the amount of independent oversight you have to have, down to the level of detail of picking selectors. Very intrusive, but not fatal to what GCHQ does and talking about a statute that's already been overtaken by a new statute. So there's plenty more to come. They did not uh, prevent GCHQ from cooperating with NSA, which would have been a, a red line. I think the European Court of Human Rights knows exactly where the red lines are, and they tried to snuggle right up to them without crossing them, and they probably did. So uh, we'll see more about this. This is it's going to be another 10 years of litigation over this. And of course, now the, the UK could, if it wanted to, if the red line is crossed, just leave the uh, European Convention on Human Rights. I suspect, I haven't looked at that closely, but the European court has to worry a little bit about that possibility. The Biden administration very quietly and with as closed a mouth as it could possibly put forward, decided not, at least up to now, is not going to rescind a Trump administration rule that required visa applicants to register their social media handles. They're not expanding it, but they are not uh, getting rid of it. I think they probably, since they've been getting this data, the government probably has actual 
data that shows that it uh, has kept uh, people with terrorist inclinations from coming to the United States. And once you can show that, it's very hard to get rid of a rule. So it looks as though the Biden administration is going to be defending that law in court. WhatsApp, we remember we, we gave WhatsApp a lot of grief over slowly throttling all of your service if you didn't agree to their privacy update. Uh, uh, and they've said, oh no, we didn't mean that. We're not going to do that. Go ahead and don't agree to it. And every time while you're driving, while you're trying to get to something else, we're going to show you another set of prompts saying, you want to keep going, don't you? You want to see this next thing? Just click agree here and you'll get the updated policy. So that's their next plan for trying to get everybody to sign on to their, their new privacy rules. And finally, the European competition law attack on Silicon Valley is still hitting new strides. Brussels is opening a formal antitrust probe into Facebook. German antitrust authorities seem to be opening a new Google probe every couple of weeks. Uh, now that they've got authority to go after uh, gatekeeper companies, they're treating Google as a gatekeeper, particularly in ad, but uh, in, in ads, but because of their ability to collect data from a variety of places. And Google is already, already settling an antitrust case in France over its practices with respect to online advertising. So we're just going to see, you know, the, the, this is the most respectable form of international regulation that the Europeans can latch onto. It's very hard for Americans in their current mood to object to regulation that comes dis guised as antitrust regulation and to some degree is antitrust regulation, but it is going to be a very constricting set of rules for practically everybody in Silicon Valley and the entire become an indispensable intermediary and live off the network effects business model that Silicon Valley has been pursuing for 15 years. All right, let's go to our uh, interview, which is on ransomware, and it's an effort to dig into the ransomware task force report, uh, and it's almost 50 recommendations. And in order to cover that, we've got a, a terrific bunch of people. So the executive director of uh, the Task Force Philip Reiner, who's at the Institute for Security and Technology, which sponsored this, and Megan Stiffel, who's uh, with us as well and who's been on the podcast as a contributor uh, several times. She's with the Global Cyber Alliance. And then finally, Chris Painter, who uh, is famous uh, in part for being the first cyber ambassador, the State Department's head of cybersecurity issues, and is now at the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation Board. And Chris Painter, who is at the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation, uh, and of course is famous for having really introduced the uh, State Department to cyber diplomacy. So welcome to all three of you. Let me start out uh, being a little provocative. There are almost 50 recommendations here. And as I said in my email to you, so many of them are just so boring. They're very procedural. And I, I'm going to ask you to defend, either defend the idea that they should be boring or tell me they're not as boring as I think. Well, well first, Stuart, I'd say it fits right in with the format of your podcast. 
<laughs> yes, we'll get right to the provocation. <laughs> but why don't, I, why don't I let Phil answer that since he was the master of ceremonies and, and I would dispute your boring okay. epithet. They're not all boring. There's five or 10 of them that are real substantive and uh, novel contributions to the uh, 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 to the policy debate. But a lot of them are, we should have a task force. We should have a whole of government approach to the problem. And those are very kind of, I'm fixing to fix it, not- Sure, I'm sure. Well, and I, I think both Megan and, and Chris would back me up on this. There were folks who were involved in the process who got pretty animated at the fact that we were gonna set up a process in order to address a process. I think at the core of it though, one of the things that's really been lacking here, and I personally would assert is absolutely what's necessary in order to actually make any difference with this problem whatsoever is that you needed a you need a coordinated effort that is undertaking a clearly laid out strategy to turn the situation around that currently doesn't exist and so when addressing any problem of this magnitude which really is not only a market failure but is is something that has risen to the level of a national security threat unless you put the right organizational structure in place to execute said strategy, you're flailing. And so sure, yeah, recommending international coordination may be a bit passe, recommending more public-private collaboration, recommending more intelligence sharing. These are kind of cliche, almost throwaways in some regards, but they're meaningful in the sense that there really does need to be this full suite of activity that's undertaken at the same time and with some alacrity, and it needs to be better coordinated. So, and Stuart, this DOJ, DOD, Treasury, DHS, they can all do what they want to do. But if they aren't talking to each other about what they're working off of, they aren't working against the same target list. We've seen this over the years. You're not going to solve the problem. So to a certain extent, yeah, first things first, get your organizational structures right, coordinate and prioritize and then maybe you'll actually be able to execute on some of those lower level recommendations, those actions. I would also assert that while they may be boring, boring is fine with me. Just do it then. Fair if, enough. If it's yep. boring or if it's, if it's sexy. Yeah, I, I'd add to that, that you know, a predicate to getting anything done, and Stuart, this too, is for the U.S. government at a very high level to take it seriously, to actually make it a priority. And I think all of our feelings was, while the government is paying more attention to state-sponsored actors, which it should, that those are important threats that we face, this was really very much under the radar for them. It wasn't a priority. Yeah, DOJ was looking at some of these things. DHS may have been looking at some of those. But we weren't treating it as a real national security issue. And the the real thrust of this report, which I've said before, you know, we've worked on lots of reports in the past that become shelfware. I don't think this will be because what it tries to do is set out across the board recommendations that deal with every part of this that needs to be executed at the same time. And so, yeah, part of it is getting the U.S. government to say this is a real honest to goodness priority, and we're seeing that already, and that's great. But we also have some recommendations, I think, dig down deeper into that, how we're going to, for instance, get nations to behave different ways, how we're going to do coalitions. Some of it is procedural. Some of it is, I think, actionable. So I think you, I, I would not have the same reaction to this if you had 
said, which is what I think you're saying, we will know the US government is taking this seriously when it does all the things it usually does with a new problem that it takes seriously. And these are all the things that the government does with new problems that it takes seriously. It, it organizes task forces, it uh, creates interagency uh, procedures for addressing particular problems. Uh, and all of those recommendations are basically getting ready to do something. But if the government doesn't get ready to do something, yeah, that's fair. It isn't going to do anything. Megan? Yeah, I agree. I think that Chris, to build a little bit on what Chris said, and Philip knows this too, we had folks who were leaving the prior administration saying, we've been banging on the door to say this problem, this is a problem, and we can't get any traction at the White House or the NSC. Oh, well, that's because um, the, the White House only cared about three or four things, and this wasn't one of them. Uh, that's always the way with White Houses. Uh, but uh, now you have more traditional and traditionally organized White House. Uh, yeah, but even in a traditionally organized White House, things. they have lots of priorities. Even in cyber, they have lots of priorities. So, so how does this rise above it? Yeah. And certain... Well, why should it? I, let me ask you that. I mean, I, we started with me being a jerk, as you say, that's, that's on brand. Uh, but let me give you a chance to say, why should we make this a high priority? Well, maybe I'll start. I mean, what we saw just in the last week gives you all the you know, evidence you need. I mean, this is not just a criminal enterprise that is stealing money or stealing trade secrets or doing things like that. Those are bad, right? Of course. This is disruptive and it could disrupt critical infrastructure. It could actually put businesses out of business. It is by design disruptive. It's not flying under the radar. It's not just stealing information. It is both extortion and the information that's taken and, it, and it's causing real disruption. The Colonial Pipeline is a huge example. And Stuart, the, the term I hate most in the press is wake up call, that this is another wake up call because we're like somnambulant. We keep waking up and then falling back to sleep. But this really is an indication that it hits people where they live, not just governments thinking about these issues on an ethereal level, but really where they live. The other thing I think is key here is what's happened over the last year with a pandemic where hospitals and healthcare has been attacked as well. So that's a big issue. And the fact that there are no consequences for these guys, and it's just a, a, a money fountain for them, we're gonna see it continue to increase. So it involves critical infrastructure, it is a national security issue, and I think that's that case has been made and will be continue to be made. So the the money fountain takes us to your recommendations on cryptocurrency, I think. That's the only thing I see as trying to cut off the spigot. And what are your suggestions for what we can do to make cryptocurrency less of a, a wellspring for this kind of criminal behavior? I think part of the process here was to get with those who are experts in this space. So the blockchain analysts, the the actual exchanges themselves, the folks who deal with this stuff day to day, it was a bit, and I'll be quite candid, it was a bit of a learning process for myself to realize just how earnestly the exchanges, who still have challenges and, and have, I would argue, some flaws that they're grappling with, but then how earnestly they're trying to be in compliance and how and actually how well they're doing. The various exchanges that are out there, they want to be part of what is an incredibly powerful set of tools and lucrative tools that, that are pushing forward right now. The fact is, though, is that there are elements within the ecosystem that are outside of that interest in being compliant. There right. are those tumblers, the mixers, for instance, who you go find it online, and it literally is advertised as a money laundering opportunity. Those should not exist. That simply should not be on the internet. And so there is at the top line recommendations where you have international coordination, both financially but diplomatically, there are not just law enforcement, that there's other means for taking those kinds of things so, down. 
so we can't yeah. get rid of tumblers completely. No. I suppose you could get to the point where it's all on the in a bad neighborhood, and you, if you go down there to launder your money, you may lose it all. And I think, to a sense, with the the intent here, and this is some of what I want to disabuse, and I think Megan and Chris will back me up here. Some of the news around our report was, hey, this group has gotten together to to bring crypto cryptocurrencies to heal. No, I, I personally find the cryptocurrency ecosystem fascinating. DeFi and the rest of it is one of those things that I think we should be celebrating. That being said, there are elements of it that are being abused. And there is more that could be done internationally. It's not just a U.S. issue. Internationally, to actually kind of close out that space from these malicious actors, push them further out into ever more illiquid markets where it's harder for them to get the cash that they really want. It's harder to cash out, period, because they're going to get caught. That's one of the, the choke points you can really seize upon, et cetera, et cetera. So, one of the so what, what, Chris, what, what do you think yeah. of what, what the Chinese and the U.S. government have done in the last week? The IRS saying every one of these transactions needs to a, a 1099, if I remember right, if it's over $10,000. And the Chinese saying, well, I, we don't want this stuff touching our bank system. So I think from the Chinese perspective, it's more of a control issue. I think from our perspective, it's rather astounding to me. That's not already happening. That seems like basic sorts of processes. I think what we're more seized with is even further out than that, right? So the reporting about certain dollar amounts, sure, that'll help. But how do you actually get to the point where some of these ex over-the-counter exchanges, some of the more, more difficult to actually trace processes are being gone after by partners, right? Because the U.S. can only do so much. And even if China is participating, you've got other actors in the space who aren't doing enough, who could be doing a lot more. That's where... I think Megan and Chris and I and the other co-chairs and the task force really talked about international pressure that's necessary. You're not going to get after the elements of the the cryptocurrency ecosystem unless you have actors, for instance, across Europe more collectively working it. You got the, the G7 finance ministers coming out and saying that this needs to take on greater levels of oversight and regulatory efficacy. Where's the plan? Yeah, those are the yeah. guys who should be doing it. I, I, okay, so what's your idea for improving civil recovery and asset forfeiture? Because, of course, you can't really reach the assets, can you? You can just kind of complain about the address. So some of what can, and this gets into a broader conversation about ways to help mature the cyber insurance market. There are steps that can be taken both from, and I want to get out of the way here because Megan and, and Chris are, are much more eloquent on this than I am. There's things that you can be doing better at an international law enforcement level to to better understand this ecosystem. I think it's actually fairly not very well understood at this point. It, the number of people who are actually within U.S. law enforcement who actually are experts on this are that needs to be increased. That was something that we called for. Hubs of activity focused just on this between international law enforcement organizations need to be established. They don't currently exist. That can be ratcheted up. Let me ask yeah. Megan, uh, uh, can you actually forfeit any of this uh, cryptocurrency? Yes. I mean, I think there have been cases already, but what I think Philip and, and others have alluded to is that they're with greater information sharing, which is thoughts and prayers, but no, really, th greater information sharing, not only on, on IOC and IOCs, indicators of compromise, cyber threat indicators, but also around the crypto space and the payment space, which is why we have this recommendation around required payment, required notification of payments, there is a nascent-ish practice, not only in the United States, but elsewhere, particularly, I think, in, in a partner nation that is working well between law enforcement, the insurance companies, some of the incident response firms in actually freezing some of these funds. So, and 
Yeah, it, it, it occurs to me, and I'm not deep in this, but you could say we don't want to see transactions in cryptocurrency that doesn't have a provenance, just as we don't want to see art move that doesn't have a provenance. And of course, we know that you can do it without a provenance. You can hand, sell it to somebody on the black market and not give them anything that tells them where it's from. But uh, if you ever want to bring it back to a real banking system, you're going to have to show where it was and be able to link it up to the blockchain records that will allow you to, to do that. Uh, that would be a major change in current practice, wouldn't it? I think so, but I'm not the, the currency expert of, okay. the, of this group. But I think, too, there's another point to this, which is to say this back to what we were discussing a few minutes ago, there's a shaping opportunity here, just like we did with other national security threats. We're trying to shape the behavior of the bad actors. And if we can push them to places where we can actually either get a hold of them or basically exclude them and, and, and further push their, their harboring jurisdictions into the corner, that likely Hasn't yeah, and said it's a good sign that the G7 finance ministers a year ago called attention to this problem in their in their declaration. Now, calling attention to the problem, Stuart, is in a declaration is great, if, but unless there's follow-up. Well, yes. having, it, having it worked takes, on many of those myself, I know that. that. <laughs> Getting that, but... those special words into a declaration is always really hard. But but there's been a lot of instances in the past, cybercrime is one of them, where the then G8 was a trail setter. It was a crucible for a lot more a global action, including things like the Budapest Convention. So I do think you can use these as uh, a jumping off point for a more integrated international effort on these. And some of it is just using existing things like know your customer rules and others rather than create something new. Is the UK going in the right direction here? Because my impression is they're the guys who are most in hock to financial institutions that don't want to be regulated. It would seem to me that they're actually one of the most forward leaning when it comes to this. And okay. you've got public statements just in the past couple of weeks from some of their senior most people who are basically putting these actors on notice. Okay. Because well, so, if they're doing it, then everybody from Singapore North is going to... Well, and also, uh, Stuart, that also uh, carries over to a larger that. issue. We talk about, you know, and this has been true for years, too, on cybercrime, trying to get those jurisdictions that are safe harbors to do something about it. Now, that's hard with Russia. That's hard with North Korea. It's impossible in North Korea, practically. But we haven't used all the tools we could use. We haven't actually even used sanctions in a way that's going to change behavior in any meaningful way. And and that part of that is because we've been careful about not hurting ourselves either, but we've got to be more, less risk averse and start taking action that's going to change behavior of those, those states that are either coddling or directing or just turning a blind eye. And the ones that can't really help themselves, we could do more to help them and do joint investigations. It's all the typical stuff you can do to bust up these groups from the inside, but we need to be more aggressive about it and make it not just a cyber thing, but be part of our well, foreign we, policy. Right. And look, on money laundering, yep. uh, it took 15, 20 years, but we did set norms and eventually <laughs> complied with them ourselves. What, one thing I'd go back to as well that came up in the process of the task force, and this is why it was so, I think, incredibly useful to get such a broad mix of folks together, was having those who are familiar with subrogation contribute to the discussion. And this is actually something that has happened in the UK and can be, I think, learned from and expanded upon, which is this ability for the insurers to actually go back and seize those assets 
So this is As a they, new idea. I'm going to I'm searching for some of the new ideas here and some yeah. of the crypto stuff was and this uh, was certainly was and this too is a relatively sophisticated and novel approach. Subrogation is where the insurance company says we paid on a claim and therefore we stand in the shoes of the people who uh, uh, were harmed and we're going to combine all of them and sue your butt. And, and the, the technical ability to actually have done the tracing so that you can go out and actually seize the assets and recover, they've done it now. So I think- They've actually the, recovered them? They've actually recovered assets, that's right. How do you do that? You go to the, uh, <laughs> I mean, who, who do you go to to say that's really my money? That I, I would have to, I would have to point folks back to the one instance that I'm thinking of, but this is also why the report calls for and to a certain extent, it's less than satisfactory because it calls for those who are in the industry to get together to figure this out. I think there needs probably needs to be a little bit more done from those who are outside the industry to get together. But I, it's my understanding that DOJ and, and others, DHS, are kind of seized, Treasury are seized with trying to help figure this out to get after it with greater uh, resources. I think it t it's going to take a little bit of a better understanding actually to how it works. And I don't know if there's a a constraint in the US context that would afford for this kind of thing to occur in the UK, whereas it can't in the US. I'd turn to Megan and, well, Stuart yourself and, and Chris no, to see if I'd, you guys know anything more about that. I, but. I'd love to hear more about I can about see this. the antitrust. Well, we'll know that justice is serious when they say, they issue an opinion saying there are circumstances in which this is not anti-competitive. Yeah, they hate to do it, Stuart, but they've done it, right? We've done that, that as in the cybersecurity context, they've done it. So. Yeah. It's not impossible. And given that they're paying attention to this yep. issue too with an internal task force, it's a possibility. And uh, your assumption is that if we assemble the claims in one place where there's real money to be made by successfully tracking the funds and then seizing them in some fashion, people will get creative about how to track them and creative about how to seize them. And with governments supporting it, insurance companies may actually start making money off these claims instead of losing their shirts. And it was our sense from the conversation that we were able to convene from those who are in the industry that this would be of interest to them to begin to help think of creatively think about how to recoup some of those losses. That's right. Yep. Okay. That is good. I, I and, and it's really interesting. I mean, whether it will work, I don't know. But the idea of not having these losses be something that's on the book of somebody who just wants to forget it, which is most of the companies, but instead it becomes potentially a profit center for an insurance company. That's a step in the right direction. Uh, let me ask this. I, uh, these are two of the good new ideas, or at least the new ideas, and I, they sound good. If you had to pick a third new idea that's in here that it that doesn't that passes the uh, not boring test what uh, what I'll, I'll let Chris rise to that occasion Chris what's the what's a new idea in here that uh, so so uh, Stuart I thank you for reading the report about. that we weren't able to come to a consensus on whether or not uh, you should forbid ransomware payments and there's a reason for that I mean there's arguments on both sides certainly if the whole reason these groups are doing it for money if you ban it, it makes it harder for them to want to operate, right? But on the other hand, the people that impacts most are the small and medium-sized businesses, the people who can't afford to pay it, they can be put out of business. So we talk about a number of factors that government should look at as they're assessing this issue. So I thought that was valuable. But part of that, almost a lesser included of that, is that if you do pay ransomware, you have to report it. And Stuart, you are well aware for 20 years now, we've talked about cyber reporting as a bill we still don't have one, which is insane. And I know there's bills in the hill to deal with this. But with ransomware in particular, 
it will make it, we don't even know the scope of the problem. We only know anecdotally what we see. So it will help with that. It will help actually follow the trail of these criminals, especially if we get enough data from the victims in a timely enough fashion so we can trace it back. And it doesn't victimize the victims more. So I think that one, although not novel in terms of we've been talking about reporting for a long time, I think is important as a way for us to get better visibility and better action. And, and I think you're absolutely right that it needs to be, you need to report it in detail before you pay it. Because what's going to happen is if we get good at this, Cyber Command or whoever gets good at this, we're going to be lurking in some of the places where we expect the money to show up. Uh, and knowing in advance that it's coming and where it's going to, it gives us a real leg up on the possibility of interdicting it later. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. That's a great idea. I Look, I listeners would <laughs> not feel that I was on brand if I didn't ask you about your hackback provision or what you call, I, I, my grandchildren have introduced me to the concept of sorry, not sorry. So this is hackback, not hackback. What is it that you're actually saying should be, the, uh, the private sector should be able to do that hackback, that the hacking laws don't perhaps let them do now? Well, all right. I think you know, the first thing we'd say, Stuart, and, and a big disappointment to you, who I know is the hackback king, the king of hackbacks. I know the hackback <laughs> lobby must be paying you a lot. I don't know where it's going. Yeah, I am. Stuart, I think, because of you. <laughs> but in any case, we, we deliberately say in the report that we are not endorsing hackbacks. But what you're saying is that there are circumstances where providers, internet service providers, other providers can interdict traffic. They can sometimes do it under their terms of service. There are times when they, they feel uncomfortable doing it because they're risk what they think and maybe not, maybe is legal liability. So make that clarified for them so they can take action on traffic going over their systems that will enable them to interdict some of this stuff. And so it's not, they're doing it on their own systems, so it's not a hackback, but it's actually taking action against potential customers. It, it's more, real, it sounds to me like it's more relief. To some extent, yeah. I mean, I think it's relief from perceptions, uh, it, 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 whether they're real or not, that yeah. they can't do these things now. And you know, obviously when they have built in terms of service, they have cover but not all of them do. Now, Megan, if you want to add anything to that. So why, and I'll ask Megan to elaborate on this, why wouldn't you say, well, the government could, could do that, give the government the power to say, yeah, interdict this, interdict that, and go through a process in order to, to do it, as opposed to just saying, I've lost enthusiasm for trusting Facebook to set content moderation standards on the internet. And I'm not sure I'm gonna be more enthusiastic about having AT&T decide which of my packets it's gonna do. Well, I think there's the length to which the government might extend that authority, would it be to be granted is, could be quite long or deep depending on the way you wanna think about it. And, and I don't know that we wanna go there, right? In some ways, I think I'd rather have AT&T deciding as long as they're not deciding that they're otherwise going to take... Well, maybe they won't deliver other... Facebook's packets. <laughs> well, they don't have to because I'm not on Facebook. But so, but I think the first step is to say, and even if we decide, we were to decide as the United States to take that approach, what's, I guess one, one could say that's already the approach in other countries of the world, but you know, we do set a precedent. And so do we want those middle countries who haven't yet figured out if they want to take this kind of non-authoritarian approach to the internet and, and speech to that degree or not? But I think the piece of it too is, there's probably, it's really clarifying, it's not necessarily granting additional authority. So if, if XT&T can block traffic in an ongoing incident, but is otherwise 
concern that they don't have, if there isn't a court order involved, it gives them the clear protections that they would be most comfortable with. It would be helpful if there was additional clarification around the scope of existing authorities under CISA. Bill, I want to get to you, but I I want to ask this question because it's sort of fundamental. Everything on the internet that makes a difference is encrypted already. You're not going to get into it. It's all end-to-end encrypted with a TSP, or most of it is. So what difference is it going to make? I mean, what can AT&T see running a backbone uh, that would actually address the ransomware problem? So uh, Phil, I know you were going to say something else, but if you want to address that, I'd appreciate it. Otherwise, we'll flip it back to Megan and make her on the hot seat. I think it actually starts to, to get after that. I'm a bit of a process person, and so I default back to the conversations that we convened, right? It's not so much of, it wasn't as though the group was saying, give me more authority to to engage in more you know, infrastructure disruption. They were saying, we can do infrastructure disruption because what we see is X individual in X building in X city actually doing this ex malicious activity and i want to be able to do something about that it's within my terms of service but am i okay now something like that they get a complaint they say i've gotten we've been getting this stuff this malware delivered to us we know who's doing it say please stop him then the isp that provides the service can stop them but of course you can always find another ISP, but th- yeah, that is, the idea that cutting off service of people on your terms of service is controversial. I, they just, they need tougher. So what happens in the conversation, and this is one where I almost steal this from Megan, I think, where I feel like I'm hitting my head against the wall is there's clarity, but then there's the demand for more clarity where the clarity exists, the legal strictures are in place so that they can engage in these activities, but they say, I don't know that I really can with full confidence. And there's a conversation that may be ongoing with law enforcement at that very moment, and they're still not clear. And they may not even want to bring it up because they may not, et cetera. cetera. So the 2.2.2, I think, was that action that we recommended, which was do what you can to actually make it as clear as possible what the left and right boundaries are here. That's what the group was asking for. Right. And that is an unnatural act for criminal prosecutors. Uh, And so they haven't done it uh, and they probably should. This is a regulatory regime as well and they need to to recognize the consequences of it. Megan, did you have something to add? No. Okay, so I've got two ideas that I I flagged in my email to you and I'll give you uh, a shot at it as as we come to the end. Uh, One, you said, ah, we're not ready to say you should ban ransomware payments. I I think there's an argument that says the best thing that happened to cybersecurity awareness was ransomware. All the other stuff, you could have the Russians in your network for 15 years, and if they don't do anything to you, you don't care. But these Russians, you do care because they're going to make you care. And it becomes very public. And we should be happy to know how bad the security of things like Colonial Pipeline has been. And so maybe we should just try to make it a little less profitable by saying, if you pay ransom to a ransomware operator, you're going to pay just as much to the U.S. government. We'll put it in a fund for remediation. But basically, start raising the cost to companies that get 
postponed uh, uh, as a way of saying you really don't want to have security so bad that Russian idiots can get into your uh, network. So quick response to that. You, raise I your can hand start, Stuart, because what you're essentially saying is that every victim in the United yep. States who gets pawned by anyone, doesn't have to be ransomware, should pay the U.S. government a fine. And I don't think that's going to go very far, partly because we haven't responsibly set good standards for people to meet. There's some things like the CIS controls and other things, but we need to be more aggressive in saying what they should be doing. Secondly, yes, for maybe big corporations who have lots of resources and should be doing this, you can have less sympathy, although even there, I think there are problems. But for smaller organizations, they don't have the financial wherewithal, they don't have the CISOs, they don't have the resources to do this. And, and there are lots of vectors for these actors to come in. They're not as, as sophisticated as nation states, uh, in most of them at least, but they can be pretty sophisticated. So they may be using the low-hanging fruit now, but there's no, no guarantee they won't be using the other thing. So I think there, you, I, would, I would not endorse your idea. Yeah, I can understand that. Although I will say the idea that we should give people compliance standards to improve cybersecurity is everybody who understands regulation and understands cybersecurity knows that compliance is the enemy of cybersecurity, not, not the road to it. And a performance standard is what you want. And what is the ultimate performance standard? Letting Russians do your pen testing for you. But I'm you not even saying this, just a this list. Is, we don't have a standard uh, too far out there. We don't have what's an acceptable practice. And that does drive insurance okay. and other things. All right. So let me ask the other question, which is uh, now that people have backups and are more inclined to use them as opposed to pay the ransom, the ransomware gangs have started taking all the files and saying, we will publish them in ways that embarrass you and your customers. Uh, and they're putting them on the online and irresponsible groups like the distributed denial of secrets are cheerfully annotating them, indexing them, putting them on uh, the, the regular internet. What if we gave the same protection to ransomware victims as we give to wiretap victims today or to Kanye West? If somebody takes Kanye West's songs uh, and puts them on the internet to, for people to play, they will pay $150,000 for every song that is copied. A, and you wouldn't have to put penalties like that too often on folks before people just decided it wasn't worth it to try to exploit the loss of secrets and that that would take a lot of the sting out of the doxtortion effort. Megan, uh, your thoughts? I think it's novel. So there, Stuart, you should have come up and, and, and given this to us um, and we could have included you in the recommendations maybe. And then you wouldn't have said that everything's low-hanging fruit perhaps. But it, you and I had a bit of a colloquy a few minutes ago about whether or not this would raise the, the hackles of organizations that express concern about the scope of copyright protection, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I would turn the question around a tiny bit to say, is there... Well, I think you said you'd, you'd need some clients to see if they would be willing to try this, but it, it does sound as if there is no, what would it take for this for us to, to try this theory? Well, um, so we could probably do it today. If a company suffers this kind of loss, they can take their, their email traffic. Everything we write, everything we email is copyrighted automatically, but it doesn't have a registered copyright, which is what produces the really big numbers, but you can register it. So you just register the copyright on uh, one out of every 100 emails that, are, that have been stolen by the ransomware gang, and you pick something that if it is published as unfortunately copyrighted material, it's likely to be, it'll be sitting in the copyright office. It could uh, hurt you. And then you just say to everybody, so you download that to those files 
and make them available to the public, you are going to be copying registered copyright material and we will sue you today. It's, we're just gonna use Kanye West's existing remedies. So you probably could try it today as an experiment. Uh, I would love to find somebody who wants to do that because uh, I, I think it would be a lot of fun and yeah. pretty cheap. Uh, all things considered. I mean, you so have to be also maybe careful we'll see somebody you know, how it. large a protection footprint you have, too, because there are First Amendment, there are comments, there are other things. Does every leaked email suddenly become the something where companies are seeking recovery when it's in the public interest for that to be exposed in some way? But it's... So this they is have, they have a better They have a better the, the, lobby the than Hollywood the Hollywood copyright maximalists. <laughs> Yeah, but they wrote a law. They wrote a law that the anti-ransomware people probably could use. I, I was thinking that if I'd gotten that recommendation into your report, I wouldn't call it boring, but I might call it Mickey Mouse. Sorry. All right. Uh, let's close by you telling us what, which of these recommendations you think are going to be adopted in the next year. I think on pretty good... A pretty good insight. There's a number of them that I think, particularly within goal number three, that we could see some activity on in the relative near term. Number three was prepare, right? That's right. And there's a good, I don't know, 10, 10 12 actions in there that I think we could see a good bit of movement on. I and think there's the, some sub substance. There is some substance in there. There's quasi-regulatory, cyber hygiene regulations and local government assistance and leaning on managed service providers who have distinguished themselves <laughs> by getting pwned over and over again as a sort of supply chain <laughs> attack. So those are all pretty substantive recommendations. Do you think that stuff is going to uh, find fertile ground? So from one of the things that we wanted to, and I think, again, Chris and Megan will speak to this as well. We did not want this report to just be a report. Uh, we, we had no interest in developing some shelfware. So we're going to be doing all we can in the follow-up right now, actually, in engaging both with public and private partners to implement as much of this as possible. The indications are right now that people are willing to listen and to try and help out, particularly with goal number three, but also in terms of even getting after that on the legislative side, potentially getting after what do you do about mandating a reporting of payment? So, and we see from the White House that they are looking to potentially operationalize some some effort focused just on ransomware. So I think really across the spectrum of the goals, there's a number of these things that we'll be continuing to try to help push on. I think you see decent conversations afoot within both Treasury, but also more broadly within the USG about what to do about the cryptocurrency ecosystem. So some of this stuff, yeah, it's, it's kind of already moving in that yeah, direction. Yeah, I'd say okay. you know, just, just one thing Chris, that I find Megan. really helpful in this report is that we were working on it for four months starting in January and having discussions for those people who were not members of the task force, having people, uh, discussions with government people along the way. So it wasn't like this report sprang from like you know, the head of Zeus as a new thing. We had actually been talking to people, which was helpful. And I do attribute DHS's 60-day sprint, D DOJ's activity focusing on this, what I think will happen to the White House, in part to our really framing this. And I do think that some of those recommendations will be accepted. Now, some of them are procedural, as you say, and whether they're boring or not, they are foundational. And this has to be a sustained effort and not one that's done for a couple months and they check the box and they move on. The fact that Biden has talked about ransomware is something <laughs> itself is remarkable, right? That you get that level of attention. So, so I do expect, as Phil said, the ones that were there, I think some of these international ones because they fall into the larger category of how we need to pressure some of these bad actors. So you get two birds with one stone because we're getting no birds with no stones right now. So so doing that, I think that will help. Megan, over to you. Yeah, I think I, the pieces that, that Philip mentioned are, are the ones that I would highlight as well. I, I think it says a lot that you had 
not only what's been happening in the United States, but as Philip mentioned a couple minutes ago, the statements by the UK government talking about targeting ransomware actors and the like. And I expect that we'll see more of that in the coming months. So that's not a implementation into legislation, but that's targeting the first priority, which was to gather partners and allies together to identify this as an international priority and to bring enforcement and diplomatic meat behind it, so to speak. Yeah. And I mentioned that we are obviously talking to various parts of the U.S. government, but we're also talking to other governments as well. There's been interest from other governments. And that's, I think, going to be a fertile ground for us to try to move these recommendations forward to. Okay. So I, I, I do appreciate this. And notwithstanding my, my opener, you do deserve credit because uh, nobody had done this, had just said, what are all the sensible things that we ought to do? Uh, and the fact that you did it and did it in four months and have gotten the level of interest you got is a real credit to the credibility of your report, which is probably why I wasn't on the task force. Uh, and I, I think you're, you, you deserve credit for all of that, plus the new ideas, plus you for being very good sports uh, uh, in the course of the interview. So. Thanks to Mark, Dimitri, and Jordan for the uh, uh, news roundup. And also thanks to Philip, Megan, and uh, Chris Painter from the Ransomware Task Force for joining us. Uh, uh, just a quick reminder, if you've got questions, comments, and feedback, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Please rate the show uh, on your podcast aggregator, iTunes, Google Play, wherever. We're now on uh, YouTube. If, if you like um, uh, staring at a screen that never changes while you listen to the podcast, that's the place to go. Um, and uh, I'll leave us reviews there uh, so that uh, more people will see us. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for the introductory and outroductory music. This has been episode 364 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.